Searching for Canada's best startups. The Pitch Please Podcast. Hosted by Mike Thibodeau. Give us your best pitch. Pitch please. Three, two, one. Connecting with Canada's startups to learn about their business and the amazing people behind them. Follow along and hear some of the most interesting ideas in startups from across Canada. What's up, everybody? This is Mike. We're back here with the Pitch Please podcast. Today, we've got Vino from Cabo. Real simple names for you. Excited to learn about what you do, Vino. Um, I was cruising your LinkedIn profile. We're going to have a hell of a time learning about your background. Um, maybe kick us off with you know a little bit about you. We'll dive into that, but also um, a little bit about your role at, at Cabo. Yeah, uh, excited to be here. As I mentioned, long-time listener, <laughs> first-time participator. Um, yeah, but uh, as you mentioned, my name is Vino. Uh, I've uh, you know, really come from a background of working in the digital marketing space. Was very lucky early on to drop out of Western and um, you know give up the binge drinking and partying to join uh, Facebook early on, and um, you know got got to experience the part of them going public. And you know, really for those like next four to five years, um, watch this like emergence of advertising really being evolved online, where we could identify people and. Um, you know, I really got to work in the e-commerce team and watch brands like Dollar Shave Club uh, to Casper grow. And it was phenomenal to see how you could reach people so easily, um, you know, found myself in warehouses and then uh, obviously caught the bug to become an entrepreneur myself and, um, you know, started a dropshipping business to get my feet wet. And, and following that, you know, um, alongside my identical twin brother and co-founder, VJ, uh, who also worked at Facebook, um, you know, we decided, you know, we don't want to spend that much of our lives apart. So let's start a business together. And, um, you know, really, we were able to build Cabo and, you know, I, I operate as the CEO and my brother operates as our COO. Um, but really, when we started Cabo, we were on this mission just to help dogs live healthier lives um, and make mealtime easy again. And it really spawned from an experience we had raising our dog. That's that's amazing. Um, maybe let's start with the name. How did you you get to the name uh, Cabo? Yeah, I would like to say I have like some genius, maniacal, creative mind. But really, when we started um, the business Cabo, the idea was like let's try and offer freshly cooked dog food um, that'll be better in terms of helping a dog live a longer life uh, and enjoy the day to day with their current owner. And that kind of came about because we adopted our first dog. The moment we got to move out of our parents' house, because uh, being uh, immigrants from Sri Lanka, let's say people aren't as fond of having pets in the house. So years of us trying to get a dog didn't pan out until uh, we moved out ourselves, got our first dog. Her name was Cabo. Uh, she was actually being surrendered at a shelter. And um, this fluffy chow chow came into our life. And uh, what ended up happening was, uh, you know, she unfortunately passed away due to stomach cancer. Um, and I remember the vet telling us like, oh, you didn't know your dog was going to get stomach cancer. And I was like, that's weird. Like you don't tell a human, Hey, I, you know, you should know you're going to get arthritis at this age. Like, um, and that's what got us into this deep dive to understand that like dogs, because they're essentially inbred and the gene pool is a little more finite. You can almost like predict every degenerative disease of a breed. So like smaller dogs obviously have a harder time with the organs growing and, uh, the lifespan tends to be a little bit shortened due to, uh, issues around that area. Golden retrievers, for instance, at the age of seven, for instance, are going to get like arthritis because they have like bigger hips. Um, so these are things that are kind of like known to us. But when you get a dog, like you're not really thinking about like, 
oh, how do I plan for arthritis eight years from now? You have a puppy. You're just trying to not make sure that your puppy doesn't eat, eat a sock and uh, cause troubles that, uh, today or tomorrow. They're going to uh, do all those things though. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, and really like when we started, the premise was like, let's try and cook some food, find some people on Instagram to sell this food to. Uh, and we needed a brand name and we said, okay, like why don't we name this after Cabo? Like this, this the whole journey started from us trying to figure out like what we could have done better. Um, and we realized like, just like humans, there's two things that alter life. It's your diet and activity. And when we looked at that diet piece, we said, let's name it after her, Cabo. Um, and, you know, later on down the line, we'll, we'll, we'll change it. But the name really stuck because I think pet owners really like to see the, the story and the authenticity behind yeah. what we're doing. That's amazing. And I know we're, we're jumping really far ahead. So we're going to come back to all this, but I, I was super curious. It's always interesting, especially when it's such a, I was like, you got four letters in your name. The business got four letters. I thought maybe there's something there, but clearly there's just a big affinity for like short, easy, simple names exactly. that you've got going on. And I like it. So let's go back to to Facebook, um, which by the way, your, your personal profile and brand, your resume is amazing. Your personal online brand is fire. I've got massive envy, but you were at Facebook. Um, so you said you dropped out of Western and started at Facebook in the early days. You were there through their IPO. And that's sort of like when you made a pivot, um, what led you to Facebook and then what sort of led you out of Facebook? Interesting kind of like move there. Yeah, I think what led me into Facebook was, you know, being a 20 year old who, you know, in the past summers, I was actually studying biomedical science. And, um, you know, in this, in the previous summer, uh, I took an unpaid internship to go work at my friend's startup that was doing international clothing, um, importing it from Korea and shipping it. And it was phenomenal. You know, I was like a 19 year old at that time, having the ownership that really like bought me more into the startup culture and, and entrepreneurship. Um, and it really only took like one trip when I went to San Francisco during my uh, reading week, spring week, uh, uh, spring break time, where, you know, I could easily email the founder of Reddit and meet up with him. And this is like, you know, 2009, 2010. And it's like, it was crazy. And just being around that energy, it got me really infectious. And I found myself at school doing less and less schoolwork and working for more and more startups and decided to say, okay, like, let me take one year off of school. Um, and, and and try and find an opportunity. And I actually worked at a TD for external recruitment, doing a placement there, because uh, I really wanted to explore corporate life before like writing it off. Uh, but quickly, I realized when the opportunity came up for them to hire a Facebook contractor to literally just like download reports for advertising. Um, you know, I looked at it and said, listen, I'm 20, I can jump into this role. I know it's only six months. But if I do a job well enough, like maybe they'll give me a full time, I can work on some more of like these interesting advertising products. And uh, you know, I decided to make that, uh, take that shot. And, uh, you know, for the next four or five years, like really got to um, spend my time with the advertising team and, you know, watch newsfeed ads be built, like how the algorithm was weighing good and positive, positive and negative user sentiment, like seeing all these things behind the doors, uh, because we were very move fast and break things. So I'd say a lot of stuff was, uh, let's say questionable at times, but I think towards the end of it, um, you know, like any millennial, five years of work is equivalent to 20 years of work at a normal company. So uh, I think just seeing a lot of these brands being built, um, both successfully and unsuccessfully, right? Like, I think I got to see the rise and fall of D2C. And I think that's where we looked at it and said, like, you know, I think we have enough confidence here being sideline, um, you know, watchers and bystanders. Um, but I think it's like really time for us to, you know, uh, pack it up and, and do our own thing, because we have this expertise from Facebook. And that, that, that role really did expose me to a lot, built my connections, helped me really understand how advertising works. Um, but, uh, you know, as, an, as a young individual in their early 20s, like you just want to be able to continue to grow and learn over anything else. So 
uh, it was time to jump in and do our own thing. That's cool. So then you went from there and you started a drop shipping business uh, next. Um, and that was that with your brother as well or with some other people? Yeah, yeah. So it was alongside my brother as well. And uh, we called it 753 Group because all we did was source a bunch of random stuff and sell it. We'd run hundreds and hundreds of ads a day with hundreds of different products from coffee shop um, items to uh, bowls to uh, pet products. And, um, you know, it came from our time working with drop shipping. I was in uh, China for eight months uh, with Facebook and, and really building out that industry. So it got me infatuated with that, that opportunity. Um, and at the same time, we just knew drop shipping was a business that didn't require a lot of financing um, and it could be cash flow positive. And most importantly, it could give us the experience of like running the e-commerce business ourselves and doing operations because, you know, we could be all fine and dandy and make claims that like, okay, a dollar shave club grew and I was working on the account. Like it doesn't really matter. They, they would have done well with or without me, but, but to really build confidence to do our own brand, we wanted to to dip our toes, and and we scaled up that drop shipping business to about five million in revenue, and we were able to actually exit it with our uh, third party partner in China, uh, who was actually interested in doing drop shipping. So it worked out really well, and uh, you know, following that, we actually spent a year uh, working at other direct to consumer companies that were funded. Um, so we could really understand as well, like how does the venture capital space look like? Um, you know, what are the pitfalls and you know the things outside of the TechCrunch article? That's cool. Such a rich number of experiences. I'm also seeing here like Forbes thirty under thirty. So obviously you were having some big impact early. Um, I will never make that list mostly because not not my impact. You know, I'm just well over thirty, but probably <laughs> my impact too. How, how does? I'm curious. I have to ask. I haven't had someone that I've talked to recently that's a Forbes thirty under thirty. How does that even happen? Is it just all the waves you were making across all these different things across like working in tech, working for yourself? How does that happen? What's it like? Yeah, it's it was definitely a great experience. Um, I'm still part of the community. I think it's actually a pretty phenomenal and rich like community of individuals that kind of come together, and we all kind of have like similar trauma bonding from building businesses. So uh, it's it's a nice group of people. But uh, yeah, I think uh, we originally got a nomination from one of our investors. Um, and it was while we were building the Cabo business, this is, you know, we, we were actually on Dragon's Den and following that, like, um, we were scaling, you know, from a $1 million business to, I think about like, or actually, sorry, for 150,000 to about 2 million. Uh, so it was quite the jump. Um, and we were, you know, nominated, we went through the process. I think we answered a couple interview questions and then never heard from them. And we're like, they're not going to choose a Canadian dog food startup. Uh, but it's really about the overall um, uh, individual and their background and the work they've been doing. And I think um, uh, my brother and I were nominated together. And I guess with twins, it's like a two for one. So maybe they like the deal. Ah, nice. And so did the dragons invest? Uh, yeah. So on, on the show, we had them uh, offer us investment. Uh, it was just that like what ended up happening was we were actually shooting Dragon's Den um, during the COVID time. So there's like a lot of on and off um, that went along. And uh, it, honestly, it was just like a communication thing. So because we got the offer from Michelle and Arlene, uh, when they reached, when we try to reach out, it's kind of hard to get in touch because they are busy and things are going on. Um, at that same time, we were oversubscribed like that month by like $6 million. So, uh, wow, it, congrats. It, yeah, it was, it was a good problem to have, but the pro the issue was like the valuation was like totally different from what they originally looked at. Um, yeah. so that ended up being, uh, the area that they didn't want to like kind of get into because, you know, it, it is a show. And at the end of the day, they're also looking for like a bit of a premium in the equity. Uh, but you know, when we have the capital and, 
uh, and, and it's hard to kind of convince our existing investors, then uh, it just wouldn't be able to happen. But we still keep in touch with them. Uh, most of them are actually still customers of Cabo too. Cool. That's super cool. Well, I, I think it's, man, the experiences. I, I, I want to talk about Cabo a bit, but before we before we do, like, I kind of want to wrap a bow around all of that, which is like, what are some of your top insights or learnings from that journey, whether it being like on Dragon's Den, top 30, under 30, Facebook to going to do drop shipping to exiting a business like, wow, that is like more than most people accomplish in their lifetime. So what's like one or two nuggets that you'd share that you think are like advice people could, could take forward? Yeah, I think one is like, don't just follow the norm. Because I think even when we raise money, like we turn down all the institutional offers and specifically work with like angels and groups of angels. Um, because, you know, for us, like we looked at as investors as an opportunity for someone to work for us for free that will give us money, essentially. So they're either going to help you with recruiting or um, you want them to be some kind of impact. It doesn't have to be every day, but I think that was something that we did that was outside the norm when everyone was taking more institutional money. Um, and ultimately gave us more control. Um, so I, I always think like, you know, don't don't fall for every like TechCrunch article you see as like a validation point in terms of the direction you're going. Um, and the second thing, I, you know, that, that we're actually like kind of doing right now is um, really thinking about this as like an alliance or like the Avengers, you know, you don't have to fight this battle alone. And I think when it comes to things like growth, a lot of people think like, okay, I have to be able to figure this out on my own. Or even like when they're thinking about distribution expansion, they're like, okay, how do I go from selling just in Toronto to Vancouver? Um, and you know, a lot of those, uh, experiences is kind of what helped spawn, um, another business that we've launched, uh, outside of Cabo, uh, which gets us into like the frozen and fresh 3PL world where we actually help brands deliver directly to consumer, um, using our platform and all these fulfillment centers that we've built. So, uh, I think going through that experience, I'm starting to see that, yes, like we can all maybe order boxes together to get a lower cost. Right. Uh, but at the same time, you can also collaborate to do really cool brand projects where, um, you know, if you're selling um, a supplement drink and there's another brand that you know might be a good um, a collaborator, like reach out to them, do email blasts together, do like co-branded limited edition products. Like this is the best way where you're going to really start to grow like really rich audiences and learn from them. Um, and things like the paid acquisition, all that stuff, like there's still collaboration there too, where you know, you could talk to other people in terms of how they're targeting, how much are they spending, just getting a gut check. So a lot of that like collaboration is like underestimated um, and definitely like go against the norm. Like, you know, sometimes your gut is right on them. That's really, that's really smart and brilliant. Just like the concept of like the working together and finding synergies, even if it's not like this partnership of go to market every time or crossing over, but where can you just learn from, um, you know, similar businesses or combine forces with similar businesses to gain economies of scale, which I think that's a piece that a lot of people miss is that economies of, of scale, maybe because now, you know, a lot of businesses are, are digital in nature. So they think economies of scale is purely cloud, but sometimes it's the partnerships you have. Sometimes it's the other things you have to do. And, and you talked even about some of that buying power. Um, so let's jump into Cabo. Uh, this is called pitch, please. So before we do anything, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to start with your pitch. Get that drink of water, you know. Um, let it hear it. What is your pitch, please? Yeah, so at Cabo, um, we're on a mission to help dogs live happier and healthier lives, and we simply do that by making meal time easy and enjoyable again. Um, you know, the experience of currently you know feeding your dog. Uh, is a bit broken because we feed them essentially the equivalent of processed food. Um, the ingredients and controls aren't really there with production from the government. 
Um, so when we wanted to change that experience, Cabo just allows a customer to come online, enter in information about their dog, everything from age, weight, breed. Uh, and from that, we're able to actually recommend the, that dog owner diets that are suitable and the right amount of calories in portion. So we really fight the biggest issue, which is overfeeding, because anytime a dog looks at that bowl, you just think I should just fill it up. Uh, but really, our dogs actually need a specific amount of calories based on this information about them. And we simplify that process and we make it easy for customers to choose between um, products like frozen, uh, freshly cooked dog food all the way to dry, deliver right to their doorstep and make it a simple subscription um, and continue to provide our uh, group of subscribers fun, enjoyable products. Uh, like we have a protein bar for dogs. Uh, we do an ice cream for dogs every summer. So we like to keep it fun and interesting just as much as ensuring that mealtime is taken care of. All right, but keep it down. My dog's listening in the other room. As soon as they heard protein bar, she's like licking her lips, ice cream, I, not too loud. <laughs> so you said that, you know, the business was inspired um, by your own dog that passed away of stomach cancer and you were talking to the vet. That inspired the name Cabo. Obviously, super compelling story of like, this was a real problem for you. What made that problem turn into a business? And I guess generally, I know we've sort of mentioned it, but like, let's talk about the problem that you're solving here uh, and, and open that and unpack that a little bit, because I don't even know that people understand that they just might understand the allergies. I learned something in your opening around like the concept of the crossbreeding creates some of these issues. And so we have to be more aware of it. Can you talk about that problem and, and a little bit about, you know, your own journey and learning there that pivoted you into starting Cabo? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I think the hard part is, is like, you know, as a pet parent, we don't really think about like what's gonna, you know, affect my dog's life eight years from now. Um, really what we look at is like, we got this puppy, I want to take care of it today and tomorrow. The interesting thing that we went through with Cabo is like knowing that she's a chow chow, we didn't know that she's predisposed to like stomach cancer because we're essentially inbreeding these pets to get a certain specific breed that kind of, that, that has like a level of consistency on the fur or the look or what have you. Uh, but knowing that information, like that's kind of key. The hard part is, is like as a pet parent, you're not getting a puppy and planning that eight, 10 years out. So we looked at that as like one of the biggest issues is that like, if we know what's going to be the cause of um, you know, an illness or fatality for them, like, is there something that we can do to help guide them better? And the more we spoke to vets and actual uh, nutrition experts with graduate studies background, um, what we realized was that, you know, there's two things that affect the life, the activity. So they actually need like 30 minutes to an hour of like strenuous activity, not like just a stroll. They actually, depending on the breed, it varies, but um, that's what got, that's what has me running outside these days. But the other thing is, is diet. And what's so interesting here is that like, you know, over uh, 60% of um, pets are having health issues because they are uh, obese. And if we look at humans, like a lot of this stuff mirrors over, right? Like if we eat better and exercise better, we could live a longer life. One of the biggest issues we face is obesity. Uh, one of the biggest issues that pets face is obesity. And when they have obesity, they have a higher propensity for most of these diseases. Uh, so when we looked at it, we said, how can we just use food to solve um, that obesity problem, right? Because it's not the owner not knowing how much to feed the dog. It's just that like, you know, when you're probably looking at that dog food bag, you're not looking at that little like chart on the back. That's like a periodic table of elements trying to decipher how much to feed your dog. So it's like, will they keep eating if I give it? And the answer is they will always keep eating. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's like, when are they going to stop giving me puppy dog eyes? That's what I'll stop. But you know, what we said simply is like, can we just like produce a better form of less processed food? Because we know the processed food also contributes to the obesity. It's like, if I were to eat McDonald's every day, it's probably not a great idea. 
Um, then the other side of it was saying, can we portion control it? And those were the two things that we knew if we can control in this experience of like producing more fresh dog food that we can deliver to them that has the right portions, then we're taking away the ability of overfeeding and we're really introducing diets that have a higher digestibility, which is healthier for them. That's amazing. So can we talk a little bit about um, the types of dog food. And I guess I, I'll want to understand because I'm sure people with pets are wondering, you know, like obviously there's, there is existing raw food options for dogs. There's existing multiple dog foods that are all over the spectrum. Um, I don't know if all of them deliver, we can talk about your benefits after, but help us understand the industry. Like what are the, the spectrum of where and how people get food, what's available. And then that way we can kind of mirror what you're doing and where that fits in. Definitely. Yeah. In Canada, I think there's still about like 60% of people going into pet stores. So, um, you know, what you'll typically see in terms of the incumbents of offerings is you have the big players like the Purina, the Royal Canins that are owned by Procter & Gamble or Mars. Um, they're you know typically distributed everywhere from a pet store to Walmart. Uh, you want to consider this as like the higher processed version of dog food. So this is typically dry. You'll notice they're like chef's shelf stable for like three years. Like you know, any of our food that stays that long, I hope it's just like a spice almost. Uh, <laughs> but really, like, you know, they've become experts at um, using extrusion to like have this product last as long as possible, which is like blasting a lot of heat, um, you know, which breaks down the ingredients and then recombining it and then maybe spraying on some, um, you know, ingredients to ensure it meets like the, the um, animal feeding control guidelines. Uh, and these incumbents have been here the longest. Then you have a lot of like these new players, whereas you've mentioned like raw is a great example. We're seeing a lot more of that in the pet store and raw diets is kind of like this concept around like, you know, uh, predator style eating, right? Uh, the difficulty, you know, I think that, that raw tends to have is like, it's hard to create a balanced diet based on the pet, uh, feeding guidelines. So that's been kind of like a content, a contentious thing that's been going on. Um, at the same time, you know, vets tend to want to stray away from it. Uh, you know, that's a whole other story. I'm not going to get in the middle of that one, but, uh, I think the interesting thing about raw diets, uh, that makes it a little bit difficult is like a safety piece for the human, because there is a chance that like a raw, you know, product can cross contaminate, uh, bring salmonella to us. Um, and it's, you know, specifically a huge risk if you're like pregnant, for instance, to have like raw food um, or even just like touching that food bowl from the dog. Um, so there are still some challenges in terms of the use case of raw, but raw is like one of the faster growing trends that are very popular. Um, and then the, the final category is like you have uh, freshly cooked diets. So freshly cooked diets is something, you know, we see uh, that we do that a lot of other smaller mom pop we've seen kind of pop up here and there in different provinces. Um, and really with freshly cooked diets, it's like the same thing as ours. It's like, you know, taking some chicken, rice, et cetera cooking it like at a low temperature so that the nutrients is still there. Um, and it almost looks exactly like a shepherd's pie or uh, a chicken rice dish. It just has zero flavor because there's not like salt or pepper or spices. And, uh, you know, specifically with our diets, we're including no, like no flavor to us. They're yeah. going to love it though. Oh, the dogs will love it. They get hooked. It's hard to take them off of it. That's what I'll say. Um, but, uh, you know, on top of that, we're obviously including like a nutrient mix. So, um, everything is balanced. It's suitable for dogs at our puppy stage, adult, senior, et cetera. And you're able to customize it. And because it's cooked, um, it gets frozen and it's vacuum sealed and frozen. So it can last in the freezer for a very long time. Um, and uh, at the same time, it's also safe for us to touch and 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 uh, interact with. Got it. So it's like pre-cooked and frozen. Do you just um, feed it as is frozen, but it's just cooked? So like there's obviously frozen raw. Right. And the difference here is like instead of frozen raw, it's already cooked. So you don't have to recook it or worry about the bacteria and stuff. Exactly. You just give it to them. Still frozen. They can eat that. They, their teeth are real strong. 
you just give it to them frozen right away out of the out of the freezer. Yeah, I'm sure if you give or, it to them frozen, they might take a long time. It might be more of a popsicle. Actually, it might slow down my dog from eating too fast. Okay, so but you a could lot of, a lot of people just thaw it out. Yeah, exactly. A lot of people thaw right. it out or heat it out like uh, like a microwave meal. Um, yep. So they can either heat it up or they could just thaw it out. Most of the times, people just like thaw it out and then kind of it becomes like okay. So like food. do like your you know your chicken breast, just throw them in the fr- fridge from the freezer exactly. a day or two before they're okay, and then when they're kind of squishy, you're good to feed. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then you I, also I, said I, sh- so- I should try the frozen thing because my dog scarfs things down way too fast. I have a German Shepherd. Oh yeah. So you can give her frozen. <laughs> it doesn't slow her down much. Like. Yeah, it goes real fast. And we actually we actually feed our dog those like pre-mixed raw patties. But to yep. your point, like it's always been a discussion and we've talked to some of our friends who use those too. And, you know, they just recently had a child and when the wife was pregnant or now that they've got a child, they're worried even like the dog's tongue around the, the, the yes. baby. So that is a real thing. Yeah, it's um, a tricky so piece. It's, yeah. And so you've got that, but you've also got like, is it like a kibble or is it like fr- like freeze-dried what's the other category you've yeah. got so we have another like dry dog food it's also like used uh like the extrusion process similar to like uh what people normally see with dry dog food uh but we actually created that because you know when you think about freshly cooked and it's frozen like imagine you have like as you said like a, a large german shepherd or a great dane like your freezer is going to be completely gone right and then you're going to be eating chef boyardi for for weeks on end and your dog's eating better than you uh, so what we found for larger dogs is like they want to have like maybe 25% of that diet be freshly cooked and then the other one being a dry dog food supplement. So uh, what we did was, you know, we wanted to create something that was compatible with ours. So this is dry dog food. It uses all the ingredients or similar structure. Like we're trying to keep it natural, source it within Canada, um, you know, ensure that it's not like some four-year lifespan onto it. Uh, keep as yeah. little preservatives and, and contents out of it and then just keep it as healthy and balanced so that now we're giving options for medium and larger dog owners to get like 25%, let's say they're ordering a freshly cooked and then the remainder is coming on the dry side. Uh, and as we kind of continue to expand, you know, our goal is as we start to figure out some pieces like raw dog food um, in terms of like how we safely deliver it, the cross-contamination piece, we want to introduce that as well because our premise isn't to say like, okay, you know, if you go to Purina, they're like, okay, if you're not feeding dry, you're killing your dog. And you go to the raw guys and they're like, if you're not feeding the raw, it's making everybody feel bad. But the truth is, I think these products- You're neutral. Are, you do both. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we want to do everything because um, one of the studies that like, you know, we've been looking at and, and trying to work on with some of the universities as well is like looking at diet variability in dogs. So just like us in terms of like eating different foods throughout the week, we want to try and be able to show a premise of like what happens if they're eating raw and dry. Um, do their guts get better? Are they less sensitive to allergies? Um, so there's some interesting things there. I think that um, veterinary science schools are like helping with on the research side that we really want to see because, you know, uh, eventually raw, freeze dried, all these things, like we want to be able to be the one source that produces it for you. You know, it'll be safe either way you're choosing in terms of options and you can get everything you need in, in one place. Can we talk about that for a bit? So like, obviously your background, your brother's background, you know how to do this, like, scale shipping you know how to do advertising you know how to build a brand i didn't see chef on your resume or nutritionist but it sounds like you're you know weaving those concepts in is that like something you went to go learn are there people that you work with how are you formulating this dog food that's different than others like it sounds like there's a lot of other moving parts in the background here maybe tell us a little bit about that yeah, definitely. I would say like uh, our, our R&D scientist, Andrea, she's like an absolute pro. Like we've had her since day one or actually I guess like day 10 or so. But, uh, you know, I read her. Um, she did a graduate studies in companion animal nutrition. Um, you know, she did a bit of um, 
she wrote a piece about like freshly cooked food and like the digestibility for it. And literally the only one in Canada to do it. So, uh, you know, we, we, we got in touch. Uh, I believe she's the one who actually reached out. Uh, and then ever since then, she's been on our team uh, coming up with some of the, or like putting up with my crazy ideas, but helping us find the balance between, okay, like here's a crazy idea, like pizza for dogs. And, you know, how do we make this possible? What are the things that we need to think about, like on a nutrition basis? Uh, is there a functional component we can add to it? And then, you know, she's given the hard job of making it come become a reality. Uh, and then when we really started off in the beginning to understand how production works and operating a kitchen and, you know, we have like a human grade facility that's uh, HACCP and CFI approved. So literally you can cook human food in our facility. And like, that's really important for us when it comes to the food we produce uh, because we produce at a higher standard. Um, we actually learned from uh, a really good friend of mine, uh, Greg, who's like the chef and owner of Burger Drops, which is a... Uh, uh, a, a local Toronto burger um, joint here in Liberty Village. Uh, and he's just an amazing production. He used to work at Alouette and Aloe and like was a, a line chef, I believe. Um, so having him in the kitchen really helped us like organize and understand like how do we build a production team? You know, how do we, you know, stay on top of things like inventory? But a lot of it came down to like, you know, leveraging people around us or having people join the, the team. Yeah. So you kept true to that theme you talked about earlier, which is like collaboration. Um, even with people that aren't even in the business, sometimes finding the experts, bringing them into the business, but just getting these insights to, exactly. to go build this out. So it sounds like a massive operation. So like you've got your, like you've got your own manufacturing facility that you've had to get into to do this. Um, mm -hmm. I guess you're storing all of this somewhere. It's not like your basement cold freezer. Like it sounds like you're, you're at a pretty big scale here. How do you do all that? Like what, what's the, what did you have to go stand up? Is that sort of what that raise was about? Um, and what's sort of like that journey, journey to where you're at now? Like, what were some of the early days? Like, was it your freezer in your basement? Um, the chow chow just kind of looking over. Yeah, I'd say, uh, yeah, I feel like for every frozen or food brand, we all kind of go through the same journey of like cooking in your kitchen. Um, and I'd have like a million vacuum sealers from Costco here just running and, uh, sucking up, uh, the beef recipe to, to, to pack and freeze in my freezer and my parents and everyone else's. Uh, and obviously at a certain point we kind of move over to a commissary kitchen, which is like a, a shared, almost like a shared co-working space, but for kitchens. Uh, and even when we started at growing that, like that's really when, when we were looking at financing the business, uh, yes, a certain amount of capital goes to growth, but a lot of it was around like, here are our cogs levers. Like, what do we want to own? We know we want to own the production and we know we want to own the distribution and distribution was big for us because we knew if we could reach more Canadians, that was going to be a big piece. Uh, and in order to distribute a frozen product, like you can imagine how difficult that would be, you know, considering how bad Canada Post or uh, some of these other players can be with our regular deliveries. Uh, and that was really an important piece for us because we knew if we couldn't deliver, uh, you know, frozen food uh, in a cost effective way, uh, then the business wasn't going to make sense. Right. It's kind of like uh, Pets.com in 1999 or whatever, when they were shipping, you know, these 20 kilogram bags of dog food and it would cost them more than the cost of the product to ship it around. Uh, but what was interesting is when we did raise that financing, the you know first few things we did was actually set up these like uh, uh, fulfillment centers. So we have one in Vancouver, we have one in Calgary, and we have one in Mississauga. And what they have is like this giant like 5,000, 10,000 square foot freezers that get to like minus 35. Uh, they also have like a fridge unit in front of it. Uh, and what that allows us to do is like, you know, produce the product because we know there's a certain amount of inventory. You know, we're going through like 50,000 pounds a month on average now. Uh, and wow. uh, with that, that's a lot of dog food to store and distribute. So in order to get it to the customer where one, you know, the product is still frozen and good quality, 
and and two like cheap and effective uh, we had to set up these fulfillment centers so that we could store the product and then we leveraged last mile uh, distribution partners which is something that's like been very new over the last five or so years uh, it's been around for a while but really ex- exploded over the last five years where um, you can almost think of it as these like software tech companies that are using Uber drivers to come and pick up and deliver packages. So someone who has a van can take you know a hundred boxes and deliver it, and probably will do a better job because he's getting compensated on a performance basis, right? Versus someone who works at a federal courier company. Um, so that was another game changer because being able to ship. 15 pounds of frozen dog food to someone's door could probably yeah. be expensive, but we can do that like well under $10. And, um, you know, a big piece for us, you know, what I felt like could have been a bit faster was like, if we had these fulfillment centers in place and we could just like ship our product and start selling right away, it would have been amazing. But every time we were kind of stuck similar to what a lot of other direct to consumer brands do, which is go out, raise money, build a fulfillment center or find a way to distribute it. And what we found was like in Canada, there just isn't a lot of frozen or fresh 3PL, um, which are considered like third-party logistics companies. Um, So that's why we went on the journey of building it ourselves. And really from that, like what kind of grew from that experience of like, you know, watching us do it was that, you know, over the last year and a half, I've had every other food brand in Canada kind of come to me and be like, hey, listen, like I'm running out of space in my commissary kitchen or my basement. Do you know where this freezer space? And what was interesting is like when we built this infrastructure, we have the tech and the and the manpower and the physical component. Um, we started saying like, why can't we fix this experience for other brands, right? Like why does everyone have to go through the same shitty experience from the basement to then raising a shit ton of money just so that they could use a freezer just like ours. Um, and they have orders online just like ours, right? So, uh, we started working with some of these brands and said, Hey, listen, like, let us be your operation arm as your third party logistics company. Uh, and we'll help you go from Toronto to BC and, you know, our first client uh, on this uh, third-party logistics um, end of things uh, was able to launch into BC in one week. And, uh, you know, we're able to offer prices that are way more competitive because this, you know, we really built this around the experience of what it's like to be a direct-to-consumer business because margins are everything. And we know that, you know, if we can help save them money and we can subsidize some of that cost from the Cabo side, and if they grow, um, we can mutually benefit. Uh, and really, you know, this, this, this journey has been like phenomenal to take it from that kitchen to now, like helping others go through, uh, th- that journey of like being able to move out of the kitchen, move out of your house, move out of, uh, the province. Even. So, so many thoughts because like at first I'm like, okay, Cabo is the good food for pets. And then you start telling me about this secondary component of your business where I'm like, you're Amazon. And you've built warehouse space for other things. And now you're like, hey, I want to share this. And then you're kind of like, okay, uh, actually, I'm like a cloud provider too, because I'm going to like help scale that up. And I'm going to benefit from it and share that benefit with others. Um, that's so cool. So like, you, you know, Cabo is the main thing, but by necessity, you've had to go build out capabilities. <laughs> and back to what you talked about earlier, you're sharing it with the community. And so you're winning because you're going to be able to scale up even more and create a bigger footprint for cheaper. Exactly. And you're helping them get access to things that they can't get at that rate. <laughs> and you're helping them win and creating those collisions. Is that called Cabo? Is it called something else? Yeah. So we actually just launched the brand. It's called Packfresh. Uh, so okay. packfresh.ca is uh, where we're starting to create some content around uh, fulfillment education, uh, everything from how to deliver chocolate to <laughs> anything else that we get in terms of questions. So 
uh, yeah, we really enjoyed that experience of now grown it to about 10 or 12 different brands that we're working with, uh, distributing from BC to Ontario. And as you said, like, you know, we're very upfront with them. And I think what really sticks with a lot of the brands that we work with is, you know, some of them not even fresh or frozen. They're just like regular, they might be just selling regular ambient or dry products. But I think the thing that sticks with them outside of the pricing or our reach is really the the experience, right? Like we are brand owners ourselves. Like you're not going to find another 3PL or warehouse in all of Canada that has someone who launched a direct-to-consumer brand as well, right? So we understand the pain points. We know why they need margins here. We know how difficult it is with all these random fees that normally warehouses charge them. And we it really prioritize communication. So, you know, they're able to like pick up a number and, and call it and someone will answer. And it's not an account manager. It's literally someone in the fulfillment center. Um, and like this, like connection piece is it's so simple, but I can't believe that's the biggest differentiator. That's like that's really crazy. converting people over. It, it matters. It, it's the, it's so funny um, how often that piece is missed over and you call it communication, but I think it's actually people. And it's like people at the core. And when you go build those relationships, sometimes people forget in business, right? That it's people at the other side and actually just treating them and getting down their level and collaborating and being super authentic about it is a world of difference. And it sounds like, you know, I, you're being super humble about it and saying, you know, that, you know, it's, you know, the responsiveness, the connection, but man, I, I think they want to learn from you. you. You're doing amazing things. You, you've got this thing that you've probably broken down a lot of barriers and I would want to be in proximity if I was in this space just to learn from you to 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 catch, you know, catch a draft using, you know, F1 or Tour de France terminologies <laughs> and, and they're kind of catching a draft on, on what you are doing with Cabo. So um, that's quite amazing. What what's I, I want to talk more about it in, in a couple different spectrums, but. Um, I guess it'd be a good point to ask, like, are you just in Canada today? Are you in North America? Where, what sort of like stage are you, are you at as a company in, in your journey? Yeah, so we're primarily uh, only focused in Canada at the moment. We have done like uh, limited time drops in sales internationally with our protein bar. Uh, but our main focus is primarily servicing the Canadian audience. Like we feel like we have a good moat here and we haven't really reached the majority of the people we want to. Um, like in the coming year, we're launching our Montreal micro fulfillment center. So a smaller version of what we have built out so that we can reach more people out there in Atlantic Canada as well. So those are two big areas. And then um, really getting into the weeds of some of the areas that might not be as like, let's say top hitting for like uh you know, a bigger brand, like uh, if we were to think about like Regina or Winnipeg, uh, these are regions that we want to get distribution into. Um, so that's still a huge focus of ours because we feel like we can learn a lot from this audience. We can test a lot of products. Uh, and then definitely in the works is working on some like export business. Um, so we're currently looking at the opportunity. In the US, I think what's really difficult is like there's a lot of competitors, a lot of players. Um, we, we stay in touch with all of them. And it just sounds like a huge pissing match of like ad dollars being thrown left all, and right. But also in like the delivered dog food, fresh, frozen. Yes, exactly. So, okay. um, so yeah. the, you're, you're like, I am the Canadian yes, market we're, leader. Yes, right we're, now we're for... definitely the largest in, in fresh dog food delivery in Canada. Um, in the States, I wouldn't say it's the same. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's funny hearing this because a lot of them are VC funded. And it's a little bit of this like stuff that we saw that didn't really work at Facebook, right? Like I get it, like the lifetime value of, of these um, dog profiles can be anywhere from like 1500 to 2000. But the reality is, is if you're paying, you know, $300 CPA right now to acquire them, it's going to take a couple boxes to get that paid back. And especially in a market like this, it's very difficult. 
But I think areas that really excite us are, you know, markets that are growing in middle income households. So, you know, in, in India and like Hyderabad, for instance, like they just finally had like people actually adopting dogs, you know, whereas um, most of the times dogs are like, uh, you know, kept outside of the house. So when you start to see these like populations and countries kind of move in that direction, um, you know, we see that as like a more of an interesting opportunity to say like, okay, how do we, you know, make this play? Are we working as an export and producing here? Do we think about locally producing there? Um, you know, there's all these different avenues on geographic expansion, but we want to be a bit strategic and not just think of it as like Canada and the U.S. That's cool. So it's you are thinking about expansion, but you're thinking outside of the U.S. as well. You're thinking like, where can you go get smart about about mm-hmm. where you expand? Um, so tell me how it works. How, how does uh, how does Cabo work? Um, I assume step one, go to your website. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So step one, you go to the website, cabo.co. Right now, we're uh, completely online, direct to consumer. Uh, this year and actually entering to next year, we're starting to enter into retail. So we're doing um, uh, two stores in Calgary that we're just starting to pilot out um, and learn how we can kind of create a good retail offering. But right now, customers go to cabo.co. Uh, they start in for entering information about their dog um, from their the, the dog's name all the way down to the weight, age, breed. Um, what that allows us to do is calculate the number of calories that that dog needs on a daily basis. So you'll even tell us like how active they are. Um, and then based on that, we'll then present uh, a recipe screen where you can choose everything from dry to fresh. You can do mixed. Um, and then you can choose your portions of mix. So maybe you want to do uh, 25% freshly cooked, 75% dry. Uh, maybe you want a delivery frequency that's different. So once you've kind of selected those options, uh, you're right off to start your trial. So within the trial period, you know, if you don't like the food, you can easily cancel the subscription. Um, you know, we make it easy as possible for people to pause. Or I mean, cancel. if your dog doesn't like the food, yeah, hopefully yes, you're, yes. I mean, you could eat it. It's you can test it too, but I don't know how good, uh, I, I don't know how good I'll pass on that taste test. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like essentially if you find that your dog's able to take to it, there's no issues. Uh, if they have any issues, they can actually reach out to us. We have a, a, our, our, our customer experience team is actually a team of veterinarians. So like people who come from a veterinary background or animal health science background. Um, so they really talk you through it. If you have your dog have allergy, even before you purchase, they can start chatting with us. Um, and then once you become a subscriber, uh, you have access to our marketplace where I mentioned we do have like seasonal treats, um, different products that are being dropped, uh, offers that might help out the pet parent throughout their journey. Um, and really, you know, as we kind of go on that journey with them, they're able to easily pause, change your subscription, do all the things that are kind of necessary in the subscription era. Uh, but we want to make that experience seamless for them. So anytime they want to adjust the portions or they want to talk to someone about it, um, they're able to get in touch with us. And it really becomes, uh, you know, a very high retention based experience because, you know, feeding your dog food is something that you do ritually. And, you know, ideally your dog's not asking for something new every week. So it's a little bit different than human and things like good food or HelloFresh. Yeah, you don't have to pick your like, what do you want this week recipe? The recipes are pretty consistent. I guess that's an advantage over time. Exactly. (laughs) That's cool. And how often does it, what's like the the delivery frequency or do you pick and what are the options? Yeah, so you could pick and based on your region, it might vary. So obviously more in city core areas, we can do more flexible last mile distribution. So maybe you're receiving it every two weeks. If you're further out or maybe if you're ordering less food, it's monthly. But people can choose every eight weeks, every 12 weeks. We have people who use the food as just like toppers to add into their dog's diet. Um, And they're ordering like chess freezer worth of food every six months. Uh, Like power to you if you have the electricity for that. Um, But for the most part, like we really focus early on on that flexibility. But when it comes to delivery, we actually deliver 
um, on a, a once a week cycle. So um, if you order in Monday, you're kind of bashed in. And if you, you know, kind of miss that cycle, you're on the next uh, delivery cycle. But that's really important when it comes to uh, keeping your costs low, making sure the experience is good for everyone, um, as well being able to like uh, ensure you have flexibility if there are any changes that happen. Got it. Makes sense. Um, and I think just so that people, you know, are, we'll put it in the link in, in the show notes as well. But if you're looking, don't try to go on vacation. We've been talking about freezers the whole time. It's not Cabo with a C. It's Cabo, K-A-B-O dot co. Yeah. We just want to make sure they go to the right place and don't end up in Mexico or something <laughs> instead. Um, what is it okay for me to ask like where does this fall relative to like the price of other options it's yeah. obviously um got pros and cons around a direct to consumer model but it sounds like it's a little bit more premium obviously you're paying for the health of your dog it's the same as like yeah i can go get a mcdonald's cheeseburger real fast real cheap but if i want to like get a nice healthy salad with proper proteins and vegetables and it's going to cost me a little bit more where does it fall in that spectrum relative to, to other options people probably use yeah. So on average, we say with our dogs, like it, on what you're looking at a price point is around three to $5 a day. So you will, we almost think of it as like a coffee when you compare to a lot of other dog food, we're actually like, so if you think about the everyday kibble, you might be grabbing at Walmart or Costco. We're definitely like two X over that price. We're like a premium yeah. food. It's freshly cooked. Like all the ingredients are from here. Um, so we tend to be two X higher than that. And then when you look at more of like the premium I'll put it in quotes, dry dog food that's out there. Uh, they're actually about like closer to like, we're maybe at most like 20 to 15% higher than, than what they're doing. Um, so we're actually able to kind of keep it down when you compare it to like things like freeze dried, uh, freeze dried raw or freeze dried products. They're more expensive than a freshly cooked. Um, but let's say our dry option, it's only about like 15 to 20% higher than uh, what the comparable would be in a pet store. Um, so for the most part, we, we do like we do know that like it is a premium pricing and hopefully over time without inflation in the area, like we're able to kind of bring these things down. But a lot of it came down to like us being able to own our own cogs, being able to bring production in house. These kind of things have been important uh, and allow us to kind of like pass back that saving. Um, and hopefully over time as well, once we're able to produce more and more volume, we've always been able to like bring the price down. Uh, I think the hard part was like prior to everyone else feeling inflation we've been having it since covid with like chicken prices fluctuating it's like watching the stock market but you're yeah. you're, you're, you're hoping for thighs to come down <laughs> that's crazy I, I can only imagine like the the swings in that because the it, they are protein rich diets so, mm -hmm. so at some point that you're really feeling the pain of that meat despite all the other things you're adding in into there actually question on that because i know like in raw like there's the bone and all of those elements how does that how does that work in the the cooked product is there's like bone and stuff mixed in is that good for the I, I don't know like you've got the people on the team so is that like a thing yeah so typically bone and things like that are kind of the source of like calcium and phosphate and um, these are like the minerals and vitamins that's that's needed uh, what we do is we don't actually take that source from the the raw meat itself because the digestibility of that is actually apparently like extremely low so even mm -hmm. if you're taking like 100 grams of like let's say this a uh, bone powder that's going to be in it the digestibility might be be a lot lower on like the 10 to 15 percent so the, the difficulty there is like okay how do you make sure it's adequate enough for the dog without giving them like you know four pounds of bone powder uh so what we do is like we formulate a vitamin mineral mix that's like separate from it so it has the same properties natural everything that we try and keep and like not, not synthetic and then uh we actually introduce that into the cooking process so as part of the cooking process while they're cooking the meat it's actually like 
that's something that's done separately so that we can extract it and then make sure it's added back in. And then it ensures that the when we send it to the lab for testing, it'll have like the right levels of calcium, phosphate, and all the micro, micro uh, minerals and nutrients. This is so cool. I'm when we can coordinate it, I want a tour. I'm like fascinated <laughs> yeah, yeah, by the like by. the scale and complexity of this operation to make our dogs happy <laughs> and healthy. I, I I love it. Um <laughs> I'm like, do we start with like learning what like your hardest lessons were or the most memorable? Let's start with the fun. What like what is like on this journey, what is like the thing that's brought the smile to your face, the thing that you're most excited? or energized about that that's sort of like a core memory of, of this journey and it sounds like it's been a couple of years how, how yeah. long three years four years uh, four years now yeah okay yeah, yeah yeah so what's like the most memorable exciting moment of that four years that kind of like sticks with you uh i think one that just comes top of mind is like when i start to see like the team kind of directing the vision of the business because i think when, when we start of course it's you know just the co-founders and you know you have such great conviction with the direction but really in the later years or majority of it it's like less of us and it's like more of our team right like it's someone else who comes up with the idea of like a to-go snack bar for dogs and i'm like that's great. It's like Cliff Bar for dogs. Uh, and we said, let's give it a try. Or, you know, it's it like Karin, our head of operations, who's like, dude, like, why don't we just like spin out a 3PL business and offer these brands like better support? We can, you know, all win together. Uh, and I always love that. Like, I love that. That piece is the thing that like really drives me that like really makes it feel like, okay, if I was hit by a bus, we're going to be okay. <laughs> I I think as you say that, um, recently I talked to the the founder of Lexop. They they do like their SaaS product that helps in in collections. Um, but one of the things that he was talking about was the impressiveness of the team. Uh, you're talking about the impressiveness of the team. I think the synergy that I'm seeing across all these people is actually this aspect of, you know, you have really put your heart and soul in and hired amazing people that truly believe. And so you've brought that company culture in where they want to innovate. This is mm -hmm. their company just as much as it's your company now. So it's really cool to see that. How, how big, it sounds like your team's like 10,000 people for all the things <laughs> you're doing, but how, how big is this power, powerhouse team at Cabo? Uh, we're actually a fairly small team. So on the operations side, uh, because we have our different fulfillment centers, we're actually closer to like maybe uh, 15 or so, or maybe a little bit over that on, on that side. Uh, and that's for three fulfillment centers, which is quite, quite not quite a lot, actually, when you think about it. Um, so we kind of run, run lead operations on that end. And then on top of it, like, I'd say like our, our office team is only really four individuals. So uh, wow. we have a really, really tight and small team and we collaborate a lot, right? So we work with a lot of contractors, like different designers, web developers here and there. But I think one thing we saw from Facebook was like, you know, you'd have a, a you know, an e-commerce business that's building pants, but has like a 2000 person engineering team. And you're like, oh, we're not in the game to like reinvent the checkout button. I'm here to sell some dog food on the internet. So I think when we really look at that team, it's about like these core functions, like having Andrea, our scientist, uh, my brother and I are able to play dual roles and then really think about, you know, how do you collaborate or pull in other groups of individuals that can really help benefit like a campaign or a project we're working on. Um, and then really the bulk of our team is on the operations end, the day-to-day -day, picking and packing, organizing a lot of that, uh, uh, you know, lifeblood of the business. Yeah. I, I want to touch on that piece about your brother. I want to bring him back into this dialogue. I, I don't know if I'm like this magnet for like family founders. I've got like a whole series. I should start like a whole separate series on family founders. Um, 
What's that been been like? Like, what's the easiest part? What's the hardest part? Like, what are the pros or cons? Because I, I've seen so many different perspectives, and I think it's it's a good one because it's like the natural. It's the person you trust, but I think there's like guardrails to understanding the pros and cons of that because I'm sure a lot of people think about that out of the gates, um, but they need to know both sides of the equation. Any any thoughts on that? Um, now that you you know you've done that a few times, so obviously you and yeah. your brother create some magic. There's something special going on over there. So tell us about it. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, the it might be a caveat that you know being identical twins is a little different than siblings. Like I've seen even siblings twelve months apart not have uh, the the best rapport with each other. But um, yeah, I, I think for us, like we've always been aligned. Like other than university, we've kind of spent most of our time together and working at Facebook. You know, sharing that experience was like a big piece. Uh, and then of course, like I think the number one thing you have with like a family or sibling member is like something that you always need with a co-founder, which is like trust. You know, you need like this ability to trust them because like there are moments you're probably going to get paranoid. And I've seen it a lot with other founders and co-founder dynamics and that doesn't happen. You know, I think like when you're able to have something like family involved, there is something deeper than just the business, um, which is a great pro because you'll always be aligned. There's, you know, when I'm gone somewhere, he's able to cover and vice versa. We have very complementary skill sets, which also helps. Um, the difficulty it can be is like, you know, you're, you're taking, you're always going to be in alignment for granted. And, you know, you're not really taking the work to say, okay, like we need, just like every other co-founder relationship, we need to improve our communication skills. Like we need to like go through these processes and like really these exercises, almost like you'd go through with couples therapy. Uh, you know, every co-founder should be doing it. Uh, but because you're so aligned all the time, you're like, oh, okay, we don't need to do this. I don't need to check on him for this. Uh, but it's important just like how we check on our employees about like how they're feeling with workload. Like, you know, I think we take our, each other for granted that like, okay, if we knew we'd know. But that's where I think it gets a little bit harder where, you know, you do really need some of those like practices that you normally have with people who aren't your siblings um, and making sure and checking in on each other to be like, you know, how are you feeling? Um, you know, are we still on the same page? Uh, because sometimes I think uh, we could just be so aligned that it's almost harder to look outside and be like, what are we not aligned on anymore? Right. Because you're still growing as an individual and changing as two different people. Yeah. So I can embrace the trust, but, you know, don't, don't take for granted that you still need to nurture this relationship the same way you would with someone that's not, you know, family to, to make sure that you you're breaking through at every, every turn possible. What's yeah. been like the hardest, I mean, I don't know, it sounds all really hard when you talk through it, you make it sound so easy, but what's been like the hardest part of, of getting this to where it is today? Ooh, that's a tricky one. Um, yeah, I'd say definitely the hardest part is, um, not being able to like, I think like really get a lot of the the, the, the support that we see in the States. I, I think like, you know, looking back at it, uh, what's what I find is always very difficult and like for Canadian entrepreneurs is like, we have a difficult challenge here because like our country population wise, I think we're just about to be California in terms of size, but you know, we're like the second largest country in the world with a population just around the same size California. I think one of the hardest parts is always like having this conversation as like why we're choosing to build in Canada um, and being able to get a bit more support for it. Right. I think like that's always been the difficult part. It's like an uphill battle. And my brother and I, like we could have gone and built a business in the States, but I think as well, another experience we just saw was like all these people that are great and talented in Canada going and leaving and working in the States and launching their startup in the States and doing all this in the States. And when we were even thinking about Cabo outside of the problem that our dog was going through, we were also thinking like, what can we do in Canada? Right. And like, you know, Canada has great agriculture, you know, we, we, we're 
we actually have, you know, some of the top, th- uh, out of the top five pet food companies in the world in distribution, like three of them are based out of here. Um, actually one of them just got sold to Mars. So maybe not anymore, but the problem here is like, I feel like th- that's always been the biggest challenge, right? It's always been like, how do we think about distribution here? Uh, when there's no warehouses, right? Uh, how do I reach these people in the city that obviously have a demand for this product? Um, you know, how do I get the financing to do it? How do I, you know, talk to an entrepreneur who's been through it, right? And I think what's difficult is like, we're missing a bit of that ecosystem. And honestly, that's, you know, why we love stumbling onto podcasts like yours, right? It's just, you can hear these things and you're like, oh, other people like this exist. And it's no longer this like daunting feeling. You know what? I I respect that so much that you're, you know, you're making a what is actually a very difficult decision to like wear that Canadian pride and have that impact here in the Canadian market. It's sort of the thing that I caught that was missing when I started this podcast is you hear about like the big money scenarios and the big TAM and the addiction to quickly move into the US and what's your valuation? Are you going to break into the US market? I'm like, whoever just talks about Canadian companies at least impacting the Canadian market and staying in Canada and then having that impact on the world. So um, respect. I know it's it's a hard decision. Um, I'm sure a million times, especially when talking to investors or people, you know, trying to push back on you like, well, when are you breaking into the United States? Is the Canadian TAM big enough? The reality is if you always guide by those decisions, you'll have no innovation in Canada. You'll have no great people creating great jobs in Canada. Like, we need to have a little bit more of a cycle of supporting that here. So, so you know, great, great for doing that. Um, as we get to sort of the tail end, I, I wanted to figure out if there's any final advice, anything you want to mention that we didn't talk about today around what you're doing. I'm still taking you up. I wanted, I want to do a tour. Uh, um, but a- any final advice or or thoughts that you know you uh, you wanted to share? Yeah, I think my my final advice for anyone listening is just you know, reach out. Like, I think the number one thing is always ask for help. Uh, whether you're, you know, reaching out to a podcast host and a, of someone that you're a fan of or someone who's done this business before, I think like a lot of the times we get in our heads and we feel a bit more siloed. Number one thing I think anyone can do is just reach out to anyone and, and ask, right? Like, I think take your shot, always ask for help. People are willing to do it. You'll be very, very surprised. And that's literally like what got us to not only get into the world of dog food, but now frozen supply chain. So who knows where I'll be a few months from now, maybe a third one. I, I love it. It's, you're doing amazing work. And you know what the best part about your business is? Customer complaints are very quiet. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's actually the best. We get <laughs> the, like the best The end photos. customer is always happy. And so like you can only make them happier with better food. So you're doing both at the same time. Exactly. Like every Thursday and Friday, our Instagram gets flooded with delivery day photos of dogs and videos of dogs like going crazy for the Cavill box. And it's like the most like heartwarming thing at the end of the week is like seeing all these customers and the dogs just like really enjoying it. You must have some epic customer roundtables. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. We have some like uh, interesting, even like we have like a former prime minister that's a customer. It's so interesting. Like, and like these uh, like Netflix stars and we did the Riverdale cast. I remember delivering to them back in the day. It's uh, it's been a whirlwind of a journey. So cool. Well, you know, you know, thank you for joining us today on the Pitch Please podcast. This is I, I we've had a lot of like software, but we're we're breaking out. We, we'll talk to any Canadian startup. You're doing impressive stuff. I I love that. Um, what you're doing is impressive, but how you're creating this draft and bringing so many people along with you and creating like businesses that are supporting what you're doing. They're not like complete diversification, but these other elements to it, it's like so unique and so special. Um, so much amazing advice. 
keep up on the amazing work. We'll make sure all the great stuff's linked in the show notes. But thanks again for joining today, Vino. Um, thank you, everyone who listened in on the Pitch Please podcast and, and hope you enjoyed this episode. You've been listening to the Pitch Please podcast. Pitch Please. Pitch Please. Hosted by Mike Thibodeau. Tune in for regular episodes and show notes at pitchplease.ca. And make sure to give us a follow on your favorite podcast platform.